Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Camper Donovan. And this week we are covering Dead Man's Folly, which I have a lot of appreciation for, not least of which because it's a Poirot, but for some reason I randomly have two copies of this, Camper. That's always very exciting. Why don't you uh, start us off by telling us about the publication history? I would be happy to. Dead Man's Folly was first published in serialized form in the U.S. in Collier's magazine between July and August 1956. Then it was serialized in the U.K. in John Bull from August to September the same year. It was published as a novel in October of 1956 by Dodd Mead in the U.S. And then, of course, by Collins Crime Club in the U.K. in November of 1956. So pretty straightforward publication history. However, however, <laughs> yes, I have a series of fun facts about this, which I'm, I'm going to start off just with an anecdote as to my own reading experience when I was revisiting this novel for the podcast. So I finished this novel and I enjoyed my read. But when I got to the end of it, I said to myself, and I swear this is the true sequence of events here. I got to the end of the novel before doing any research, and I said to myself, you know, more so than a lot of other Christie novels, this one feels to me like a novella. And it feels mm-hmm. like a novella that got padded out. And I said, you know, I guess this is just one of those examples where, you know, we often talk about that great quote from Harry Adney Oliver, who we'll be talking a lot more about in this episode, how in Cards from the Table, she said, sometimes you need to pad things out because it's not quite long enough. So I said, I guess, you know, this is one of those situations, still a delightful read, but huh. then I find out that Dead Man's Folly was originally written as a novella called The Green Shore Folly that was then subsequently turned into the novel Dead Man's Folly. And this is actually a really fascinating publication history. Uh, you can probably guess who I'm getting this from. Yes, that would be John Curran, our fairy godfather, if you will, yeah, of, of the sure, podcast for, at this point. For sure, with the most charming accent, by the way. <laughs> this is what John Curran writes in his book, Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. Although it was published in November 1956, Dead Man's Folly had a complicated two-year genesis. In November 1954, Christie's agent wrote to the Diocesan Board of Finance in Exeter, explaining that his client, that would be Agatha Christie, would like to see stained glass windows in the chancel of Churston Ferrer's Church. That is the local church that Christie uh, went to. She was willing to pay for them by assigning the rights of a story to a fund set up for that purpose. So the diocesan board was like, cool, we'll, we'll do that. And they set it all up. In December 1954, uh, it was confirmed that Mrs. Mallowan's intentions were to assign the magazine rights of a, quote, long, short story to be entitled The Greenshore Folly, and that the proceeds of that would fund this stained glass endeavor. You know, it was apparently supposed to be somewhere in the region of a thousand pounds. And then Kern writes, by March 1955, the diocesan board was getting restive and wondering about the progress of the sale. But for the first time in 35 years, much to everyone's embarrassment, it proved impossible to sell the story. The problem was its length. It was a long novella, which was a difficult length, neither a novel nor a short story for the magazine market. By mid-July 1955, the decision was made to withdraw the story from sale as, quote, Agatha thinks it is packed with good material which she can use for her next full-length novel. 
So as a compromise, it was then agreed that she would write another short story for the church and that that one for legal reasons would also be called The Greenshore Folly. And that one ended up becoming Greenshaw's Folly, which is actually a Miss Marple short story that we haven't covered yet. I'm going to nominate that we actually cover that perhaps next <laughs> in, our, right, in no, our short no, story episode. Yeah. Right? It has nothing to do with Greenshore Folly or Dead Man's Folly. In any case, we can also see how Christie padded out the novella in her notebooks. And Curran, of course, chronicles that. You know, she talks about how she's going to elaborate certain things, do a much more elaborated scene in the drawing room at tea, fill out a breakfast party, et cetera, et cetera. So we have that. However, I'm also happy to report that as of a couple of years ago, due, I believe, in no small part to the efforts of Mr. Curran, the Greenshore Folly novella has now been published. It is in print. And I went the extra step and read it to make the judgment as to whether or not the original novella was superior to the novel Dead Man's Folly, which I did feel was a little padded out, delightful though it may be. And reading the novella was a really interesting experience directly after the novel because I could not tell you what wasn't in the novella since everything crucial in this novel exists in the much shorter novella. It's just all of the red herring padding that is not in there, that wonderful, tight, economically told Christie story is there. So I would almost recommend readers to just read the novella because I think it's the purer form of this story. And I just wanted to highlight this very odd publication provenance here because we really do have a different and I think pure version of this story, which most people have not read since it was only very recently put into print. The only other difference that I want to note, the house is called Greenshore. So it's that much closer to Greenway, which, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking about the fact that Christie very much modeled the house in mm-hmm. Dead Folly on her own beloved house of Greenway, which we've talked very much about. With that little detour into the very particular publication history of this novel, Catherine Brobeck, could you tell us about the victim in Dead Man's Falling? So the victim is Marlene Tucker, who is a local girl in Devon, and she's strangled to death during a fate on an estate. There are two other victims, and possibly in some ways a third if we get down to it, but we can't spoil yet. So she's our main victim. All right. We are going to go through our list of suspects. And as we did in a previous novel, we are going to be using the fantastic cast of characters that appeared in the front of one of your copies of the novel. Right, Catherine? Oh, yeah. So these are these pocket books, paperbacks. They're published starting in the 1960s. The covers aren't the Fontana covers, but they have this listing in them, which is delightful. They have little summaries, like a cast of, what literally says cast of characters. So first up, we have Michael Wayman, who is a young architect, good looking in a craggy artistic way, who is enraged by his wealthy client's lack of taste. Then we have Mrs. Folliette. Her name's Amy. We should just put that out there. In her youth, the lady of the manor, she still retained an air of ownership. Sir George Stubbs, a florid-faced, self-made man whose jovial manner was belied by his shrewd blue eyes. And then we have Lady Hattie Stubbs, Sir George's wife, a languorous beauty, childishly devoted to the contemplation of her exquisite jewels. 
Mrs. Masterton, a monumental woman with the face of a bloodhound. She excelled at, quote, organizing. <laughs> then we have Captain Jim Warburton, the uh, Masterton's agent, and admittedly, Ma Masterton's errand boy. That's literally what it says in this. I just want to be clear. <laughs> That's an interesting choice. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Next up, we have Alec Leg. Neurotically unhappy over the state of the world, he advocated a lethal chamber for useless women. Put that on your Tinder profile. And then we have his pretty red-haired wife who kept busy telling fortunes. Next up is Miss Brewis, Sir George's brisk, pleasant, 40-ish secretary. She was a born arranger. And then we have Mr. Murdell, an ancient boatman with too long a memory of local scandal. And finally, our last in the list of suspects is Etienne de Souza, Lady Stubbs' debonair cousin from overseas. He arrived unexpectedly and unwelcomed. Love those <laughs> cast of characters in these book editions. I know. It really helps They're, set the tone. It's so pulpy in some way, but also like pretty accurate. Absolutely. All right, Catherine Brobeck, tell us about the world as it appears to be in Dead Man's Folly. Sapporo is called by our beloved Ariadne Oliver, who had been invited down to Nass House in Devon to organize a murder hunt, but she feels like something is terribly wrong. So she calls up Poirot on the exchange and um, requests his help under the guise that he will be ostensibly there to give out the prizes for this murder hunt. And he's worked, but he goes and he meets two hitchhiking youths on his way from the station over to the house. And they're traveling from the neighboring estate. And we've seen this before, but the neighboring estate is now chopped up basically into a hostel. So one of these seems to be a Dutch or German girl, and she's very chatty. And the other one supposedly doesn't speak English and is Italian, and so doesn't talk to him. And so he has to deal with them in the car ride over to Nass House. Now might be a good time just to note the very specific setting of this novel. You know, Nass House is a very it's obvious Greenway for Greenway, <laughs> yeah. which was Agatha Christie's beloved holiday home. She spent her summers there. She would spend about eight weeks there every summer with her family. I actually have a really lovely quote about what she did in terms of putting Greenway into her novel coming from Janet Morgan, our earlier Christie biographer, who we sometimes reference on this podcast. And um, this is what she had to say. The book has much of Greenway from the battery to the boathouse, the long grassy slope leading to the top gardens and a nearby youth hostel like that abutting on Agatha's own land from which errant hikers would sometimes wander into the garden, gazing dumbstruck through the tall windows at the family's full dress Sunday luncheon. Agatha was often asked to lend the garden for fates and was inundated with requests, always declined to open others. She delighted in arranging treasure hunts for Matthew, that would be her grandson, for John and Peter, and those would be the sons of her brother-in-law, Cecil Mallowan. The same two boys who were the recipients of the proceeds of Hickory Dickory Dock, we mentioned them in our last novel episode, uh, and also for the children of the diplomatic and archaeological friends who stayed at Greenway. All this was woven into a sprightly story that begins sunnily but ends grimly. And we really do have a very sunny beginning here. I mean, it's it's all a bit of a lark whenever Ariadne Oliver is involved anyway. By the way, Kemper, 
Do you know where we see this same setup? We see it in Five Little Pigs because the house in Five Little Pigs has been taken over basically to be cut up by a hostel in the aftermath. You know, we go back in time there, but we have a very similar river setting with the same battery and the same gardens. And it's a very similar setup here to what we see in Five Little Pigs. No, it's true. I mean, Five Little Pigs and Dead Man's Folly are the two novels that incorporate Greenway, you know, the most prominently and obviously. And when Poirot comes upon Ariadne Oliver eating apples, but of course, she is sitting on the same battery wall that Elsa Greer is sitting on in Five Mm -hmm. Little Pigs, doing something Mm -hmm. a little different. (laughs) (laughs) a little different uh, tone there in five little pigs but yeah things will turn dark and grim here too have no fear i mean this is an example of a fantastic setting because christy is painting from life she doesn't overdo it though either there's not a whole lot of real estate spent in the book as to depicting greenway but you do get the sense of this elegant estate Perhaps we can cheat a little bit as readers, and we'll talk about this when we get to the adaptation, but the David Suchet series filmed their version of Dead Man's Folly at Greenway. You know, you can see what Christie is describing with your own eyes. So... When Poirot arrives at Nass House, he is greeted by Amy Folliot, whose family built the estate and owned it up until the war. You know, she gives this little history of how it dates back, I believe, to the late 18th century. And there was even an Elizabethan version before that. And that too, even that history, that very sketchy history she gives, is the history of Greenway. So that is true to life. Once the war happened, death duties yield taxes, <laughs> deprived the Folliot family of, you know, the ability to keep the house running. Poor Amy Folliot had two sons, but they were both lost in the war. Her husband also passed away, so she seems to be all alone. And the estate, as happened to so many of these estates around this time, uh, was sold to a rich man. And more on him in a moment, because we will meet him and how. And now Amy Folliot, the former mistress of Nass House, lives in the lodge at the front of the property. And she's sort of the caretaker. Like, we can take the meaning of that both literally and figuratively. She really does deeply care for it on an emotional level as well. And that's very obvious from the second that we meet her. Yeah, but also she is, like, trimming hedges. (laughs) Yes, she's gardening and actually physically caring for the estate when Poirot happens upon her. I think the character of Amy Folliot is exquisitely drawn, actually. I think she's terrific and sad. And like many people in the novel point out how hard it must be for her to live in the lodge when this was her house. So Paro goes there and he meets the new architect. He meets the gardener. He meets the elderly boat gentleman, Murdell, who, much like a Scooby-Doo character or someone who fell out of um, Cold Comfort Farm, which we have mentioned repeatedly on this podcast because we love it, um, says, there will always be foliots at Nass House. And Paro's like, oh, it's kind of weird, but okay. He also finds a place where Mrs. Oliver originally wanted to place the fake murder victim. It was this architecturally weird folly. Do we want to pause for a moment and explain to non-UK listeners what follies are? 
Yeah. They're decorative gardens, usually in giant country estates, so often uh, along a water feature. And, you know, you could have like a little pavilion, which is the case here. The house has a folly, which the architect Michael Wayman despises, right? Because he hates where it was placed. But Sir George had it placed there right after he actually bought the estate. So that was where Ariadne Oliver wanted to place her murder victim. But somehow the location of the murder victim has changed so that now the murder victim in this murder hunt that she's been concocting, which is just the murder mystery version of a treasure hunt, right? So it's like instead Mm -hmm. of searching for treasure, you're going through different clues and trying to figure out who the murderer is and where the victim is, et et cetera. So she has to put the victim somewhere. So somehow it has changed from the folly to the boathouse. And that actually is a really key point because it's the little changes like that that were the catalyst for Ariadne's phone call yeah, to Poirot she, in the first place. It's why she feels like something is up. And the problem is she doesn't know why she changed it. She knows that it was like maybe suggested. Right. But she doesn't know who suggested it. Mm-hmm. It seems that Correct. You know, perhaps someone is working behind the scenes here in devious ways to affect certain changes for nefarious purposes. And it's really as vague as that. I mean, that's all that she tells him when he finally mm-hmm. arrives at NASA house. She says, I know there's something just wrong here. And that's all she can point to. She's like, I don't know how my plans were changed, but they were. And I don't even I don't even know how that is bad, but it feels bad. There's something wrong here. Ariadne Oliver has always been one to go on and on about feminine intuition. That's become but a running joke with the Ariadne Oliver it, character. Actually. Well, it is a joke, but, you know, she's not usually wrong. And here, this is a big point in favor of female intuition because she turns out to be not at all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not even remotely wrong. So the fake victim here is going to be played by local teenager Marlene, who we mentioned. We'll talk about this later. There's a lot that is said in this about her weight. There's a lot of problematic allusions made to Marlene, both before and after, but perhaps especially after she is murdered. We will be getting to those in our Stuck in His Time category. In any case, Ariadne Oliver, her cover story for getting Poirot down here has been that he's going to hand out the prizes <laughs> at right. the end of the murder hunt, even though the real story is, I know that something's up here. You have to figure it out. You have to, in a perfect world, prevent whatever bad thing is going to happen, but at the very least, get to the bottom of it. Right. And because he's this honored guest, he gets to stay at the house. He gets to stay at Nas house and he meets the owners, including Sir George Stubb who, again, is a wealthy businessman, and his wife, Hattie, the Lady Stubbs. She's apparently mentally deficient. This is not me editorializing. It is harped on repeatedly. Yeah. She's very, very beautiful, and she wanders around the estate in heavy, heavy makeup and, like, these Christian Dior dresses and just is kind of like a dim ghost. He also meets, like, Amanda Bruis, who's Stubbs' long-term secretary. He meets the legs and the Mastertons, but mostly we spend a lot of time on Hattie. She's also presented as, quote-unquote, exotic. 
I would mm-hmm. say, and this is also slightly problematic. Captain Warburton actually says that she looks South American. People say they believe she comes from the West Indies. From the get-go, there's a lot of mystery and uncertainty surrounding Lady Hattie Steps. And then to make matters worse, on the morning of this murder mystery extravaganza, Lady Stubbs receives a letter from her cousin, Etienne de Souza, stating that he's arriving that very day via yacht and he will come for a visit. And she is immensely distressed by this um, because she thinks he's a bad man, a villain, a murderer, someone evil. And so she runs up the stairs in the house. Her husband follows her. And then she disappears. We're not going to find this out until later in the novel, but she fully disappears. She's not going to be seen again. Yeah, she is never to be seen again in this novel. Nope. It's quite unusual. Mm Mm-hmm. And effective, actually, because you really are expecting to see her again, and you never do. No. (laughs) All right. So during the fate, Etienne shows up, and he's dapper and rich and a little sleazy. He's kind of swanning around on his yacht, you know, going up the river. We also find out that the clues Mrs. Oliver has laid out for this murder hunt are perhaps a bit opaque, People seem to be having some trouble connecting the dots. I feel their pain. Well, we get uh, we get a really wonderful list of characters. She like printed them out. She has a pamphlet. The pamphlets were late to be printed. She has all these made up characters. There's like a young atomic scientist. It's all so weird. It's all very convoluted, but as Christy always does, she's making fun of herself. Right. Yeah, this is course, all. This is course. all very self-deprecating humor, as to Ariana and Oliver. It's very funny. It's very very funny because Christy never had a shortage of ideas, and Ariana Oliver is just constantly spouting off new characters and complications, and it's all just very bewildering very quickly. So yeah, it's not surprising that her murder hunt is a mess. <laughs> so she and Poirot go to check on Marlene, who again is playing the victim out in the boathouse. They've tucked her away there with a bunch of comics to keep her company. And Mrs. Oliver is concerned that, you know, she might have gotten really bored and just left the boathouse completely. She doesn't have a lot of faith in Marlene. But unfortunately, when they go, at first it seems that Marlene is doing her job really well because <laughs> they're like, oh, Marlene, you can get off. It's just us. Well. Great. But it turns out that Marlene is dead. She has been strangled just as she was in the murder hunt that Ariadne Oliver concocted. But yeah, that happened to her for real. And as we said, Hattie, it is soon figured out, is missing. And everyone is frantically looking for her, but they do not find her. Enter our Inspector Destroir. Inspector Bland. His name would not inspire a lot of faith, perhaps, but he sees Poirot and he's like, I know you. And Poirot's like, oh, Inspector Bland. They reference a case 15 years earlier. Mm -hmm. I looked it up. I was like, oh, is she making a a nice little connection here within the Poirot-verse? But I could not find a Sergeant Bland, because I think Poirot even says you were a sergeant back then. And I couldn't find a a Sergeant Bland in an earlier novel. If anyone could, I would love to hear it. He's pretty bewildered, as is everyone else, because who on earth would want to murder Marlene? Everyone basically agrees that Marlene is too fat and ugly for a sex fiend, which is not how that works and really problematic. But there you go. 
Yeah, it's a very problematic sequence in which the precise nature of how she's been victimized is discussed. So I'm not condoning it, but for anyone who thinks that Christy is cozy, I think this is my new Exhibit A that I would point them to. I mean, what she does here without coming out and saying it, but she is quite clear, is that everyone here at this house sort of assumes that there was some sort of sexual assault that happened. Right. And they're all like, well, was she... Is it... And the question is dealt with over and over again. And then you get Ariadne Oliver. When Mrs. Oliver discovers that there was no sex crime involved in Marlene's murder, she says, well, thank God for that. Or at least, I don't know, perhaps she would rather have had it that way. Wow. Bad. Yeah. And just to, you already mentioned this, Catherine, but to quote the doctor directly, because it really is horrific, Inspector Bland asks outright if Marlene was sexually assaulted. And the doctor's response is, I shouldn't say she'd been a particularly attractive girl. The jaw is on the floor. Again, that's not how this works and also gross. Agreed. Poirot is also really at a loss. Various people come under suspicion, namely Etienne, of course, because he has just shown up. But um, also Miss Bruce and Mrs. Foliet herself is talked about because it's widely assumed that she must have some lingering resentment or bitterness about her family's estate being taken away from her. And of course, the missing Hattie is also under suspicion, but Poro assumes that she is dead. Very pointedly, Mrs. Foliet refers to Hattie in the past tense. Right, that's why he assumes that she's dead. Yep. Because Mrs. Folliot. Yeah. I mean, Chrissy really plays fair here because Poirot is quite open about the fact that Mrs. Folliot knows more than she is saying. Mm-hmm. So Poirot goes back to London in disgrace, you know, not knowing what is happening here. And he goes there for weeks. And in the meantime, there is another death. Old Murdell, that would be the boatman, Devin's version of uh, of Caron. <laughs> Poor old Murdell, he apparently drinks too much, falls into the river off his boat and drowns. So So that is yet another tragedy to befall Nas House. And uh, we seem to be at a loss as to what is happening here. But luckily, we are in a fully functioning puzzle mystery and we have some clues to go through. And Catherine Brobeck, I would love for you to take clue number one. Oh, Kemper. How many times do we ever have to say this one? Costumes. I mean, it's not actors. Like, we're not going to sound an alarm right here, but costumes. If someone doesn't look like a normal person, be really sure to take several closer looks. Who in this story seems a little too dressed up? Our woman of mystery, Hattie Stubbs. Mm, Perhaps. Building off of clue number one, we have clue number two. And that is when Poirot is musing about Hattie Stubbs' intelligence, and we should always pay extra attention to Poirot's musings. This is what he says. Wasn't it true that people who were slightly mentally deficient very often had a kind of sly native cunning that sometimes surprised even the people who knew them best? And this actually ends up being a little bit of a red herring. We'll get there. But that's one of the early moments in which we should start training our gimlet eyes, so to speak, on Hattie Stubbs, because this is such a trope in Christie, i.e. if someone seems stupid, don't trust them because there's probably more to them than meets the eye. I'm going to spoil the hollow, so fast forward 15 seconds if you'd like, but this would be Gerda Cristo very much in the hollow, who seemed mentally deficient, but held a reserve of fury and even resourcefulness that surprised everyone in that novel. If you have not read 
after the funeral. Fast forward 15 seconds now, but this would also be Missy Gilchrist, one could argue. She certainly was never mentally deficient, but she, you know, had this kind of sweetness and simplicity that belied what was going on there underneath the mask that she wore for the world. So we should pay special attention to Hattie Stubbs here for two very good reasons. Right. And so this actually transitions into the third clue, which is Mrs. Foliot's younger son, James, is described as being, quote, born on a day is can't go straight. But the war suited him, as you might say, gave him his chance. Uh, there's many who can't go straight in peace, who dies bravely in war. This is a character we've seen before. It's a little bit based on Monty, who's her brother. And so often in Christie, that kind of character is key, even if it's not the actual murderer. So even though this character has been presented to us as having died during the war, maybe we shouldn't trust this. So I guess the question would be, in that case, who in this cast of characters could potentially be her son? I mean, we actually have a lot of candidates, which is we do. why we mentioned that whole cast of characters. It's just that most of them aren't really suspects. But, you know, we do have a long list of who could be her son if he actually survived the war. Absolutely. Clue number four. Sir George Stubbs draws back into his room at one moment uh, early on in the story. This is before the fate actually happens. And he's yelling out the window, actually, to those two young women who Poirot had driven up to Nass House with. He's yelling at them because they're trying to go through the property and they're trespassing. And then he draws back from the window and he says, Yes, Hattie? What did you say? And it's not really fair because, yes, I've read Dead Man's Folly before. But at this point, when I read the blocking of that in a Christie, I'm like, oh, well, clearly there's no one else in the room. If we are being made to assume as readers that Sir George is talking to someone who we have neither heard nor seen for ourselves in this scene... That means that we should not trust it. And this is another old classic clue, which is the don't believe one sense or be wary of uncorroborated eyewitness or in this case, ear witness testimony. It's both eye and ear, right? Because we neither see nor hear her. So all we have is Sir George's say so that there's someone else in the room. And what I love about this clue is that if you get there, this is one of those clues that gets us over a huge hurdle because it implicates both Sir George Stubbs and Lady Hattie Stubbs. And that is huge. Right. Clue number five. Poirot speculates as to whether Etienne de Souza is or isn't who he says he is. Everybody should fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to know anything about Taken at the Flood. I think it's really helpful to look at Taken at the Flood here in an analogous way because there's something similar happening here. The whole time in Taken at the Flood, we were thinking about whether or not David Hunter wasn't who he said he was. In that, you know, maybe Rosaline, who was this rich widow, right? Maybe she was just pretending that this debonair man was her brother, but actually he was her lover. But of course, Christie completely turned the tables on that proposition as she so likes to do. She totally upended her expectations. And David was exactly who he said he was. Rosaline wasn't Rosaline. She was not who she said she was. Right. So maybe, just maybe, that is happening here. And it's not Etienne de Sousa, the somewhat 
oleaginous rich cousin from abroad. Maybe he is actually exactly who he says he is. And uh, Hattie is not. We're thinking about. Right. Clue number six, which is busybodies. You might wonder if old Burdell's death might not have been the drunken accident it appeared to be because he knows all these families. He's ancient and he has a granddaughter, it turns out. It might be Marlene. You know, we learned this very late in the novel along with Paro finding it out because he didn't know either. And the deduction here is if we look back to what Marlene has been talking about, Marlene's spending habits, um, what Murdell was talking about to Poirot, it kind of seems like maybe grandpa told her something she shouldn't know. It's the critical link. You know, we talk about sometimes late in the novel murders in Christie that are kind of like, oh, well, you had to like add an extra 15 pages. Let's just kill somebody else. But this one matters. Yeah, no, the link between Murdell and Marlene, the fact that they're family is really important. And it's one of those cases where if you want to put in the work as a reader, you really can page through the novel and go back to some of the stuff Marlene had been babbling about in some of those earlier scenes when she's getting her instructions as to what she has to do as the murder victim, when perhaps we weren't paying so much attention to what she was saying. Perhaps Poirot wasn't paying much attention or anyone else. And uh, there might be some interesting things there. And same with Murdell. Right. You know, remember, he was saying some weird things to Poirot right from the very beginning. So uh, perhaps those are important. Let's get to our resolution, Catherine, so we can figure out what it was that this grandfather-granddaughter duo knew. So during that party, Hattie slipped out where she had, turns out, been dressing up as an Italian hostel lodger. She snuck through the back of a gypsy booth. Then she murdered Marlene, who had been paid off in cheap makeup and perfume because she knew from her grandfather that Hattie is not Hattie. You know, her grandfather had made reference to the fact that he saw a body being buried. Right. Right. Well, and that it was, it seemed to be the new owner's possibly wife and that it had happened a few weeks after they'd moved in. Yeah, it had happened almost immediately, I believe, yeah. after after they moved in. So this might not be completely making sense, but uh, remember we were talking about that second Monty-ish son of Amy Foliott's. Well, It turns out that he is indeed still alive. He was not killed in the war. And he is none other than Sir George Stubbs. And the puzzle pieces really fall into place then because he deserted the army in Italy during the war. He fell in love with an Italian girl at that point. And he married that Italian girl. That would be the woman who has been pretending to be Hattie Stubbs this whole time. That is the woman who we met in the novel because before the events of the novel, there was a whole lot of other stuff going on, wasn't there, Catherine? Yeah, because Amy Folliot had a ward. Her name was Hattie, and she was from an extremely rich family who'd sent her to England. She was a little bit slow. She set her son up with Hattie because she wanted to save the estate. She wanted to do the Downton Abbey, Edith Wharton, Buccaneers thing, right? Where you just get rich people from the new world to marry into right. landed, and then impoverished Hattie, landed Hattie, gentry. Hattie was like apparently a nice person. She just, you know, she had her issues. And James didn't really want to be tied to her. And he really liked his Italian wife. So he murdered Hattie. 
Then he and fake Caddy buried her body, and then they built an ugly folly on top of where her body was. And then the Italian wife pretended to be Hattie. And Amy did not know that her son was already married when she paired the real Hattie with her son. She just had to go along with it. It was either that or turn her only remaining son into the police. Her only only remaining family member. Yeah, as a murderer and a fraudster. So, and you know, that is also another little clue because the story that she's been putting out there is that her ward, Hattie, did not have any money. And that Sir George Stubbs, this new persona that her son assumed, Sir George Stubbs had all the money and that they got married and the money comes from Sir George Stubbs. But it was actually the other way around. And it is curious because Etienne D'Souza is Hattie's family and and he's immensely rich. (laughs) So really rich, like ridiculously rich. So, you know, we perhaps should have also been a little suspicious of that backstory that Amy Folliot was telling. Yeah, I mean, Amy pretty much became an accessory after the fact. Right. To all of that business. She also, you know, did not know that her son and fake Hattie were going to murder Marlene and Murdell. No. She did not know that Murdell had recognized the fact that Sir George was, in fact, James Folliot. And she did not know that Murdell had talked to Marlene. So all of that was a huge shock to her. When it happened, and we actually get, I think to this story's credit, a really intimate denouement here. There is no grand drawing room scene that happens. Poirot actually knocks on Amy Folliot's door, and this is something that he's done before, too. So we get this notion of repetition here where Amy Folliot is just at her end, and he says, you know, I know what you've suffered, but I also know what you allowed to happen, and this is over. She does not deny it. The end. You know, obviously... Fake Hattie, fake Sir George Stubbs are going to be brought in. And Amy Folliot, I would imagine, also is going to be brought up on some charges, or at the very least, well, I mean, there's like her life is over. Yeah. I mean, it feels like he's going to let her go off herself. That is a little bit the tone. He says the folly is being dug up. And she says that she needs to be by herself. And he says, okay. I mean, I think it's open for interpretation. I think that Amy Folliot is not the kind of person to commit suicide. I think she grits it out to the end and it's just miserable and she just wants to be alone. Like, I think she actually just wants to be alone. <laughs> but I, I think that's a very open question yeah. and, and up for debate. Yeah. I mean, and also you have to realize that the estate is also her family. So it's losing every part of her family. She's totally alone. Right. She's now truly lost everything. I mean, that's the thing. The hardship that everyone thought she was suffering under, i.e. having lost her house and seeing her family no longer living there, she wasn't suffering. But what she was suffering was so much worse. Why? The interesting thing about the book is that there's no sense that she's a bad person. No, it's true. And I assume that, you know, you made reference to a potential third victim. And I meant Amy. And you meant Amy. No, absolutely. She is portrayed as a victim in an odd way here. And that, too, is very much up for debate. But up for debate in the best of ways, because she's a fascinating character. And I think her situation exists in a gray area when it comes to the morality of her actions and, like, what choices she had and how she chose to act. It, you know, puts this book very squarely in the post-war setting, Mm -hmm. as so many of these books do in the 50s, in the best of ways, because she had some hard choices to make and she suffered for them it's an odd ending to a christy here's where i will bring up again 
the fact that when I finished this book, I said this felt like a novella, it feels a little bit like one of those alternate justice endings that you get so much in a short story right. or one of the novellas where right. we're in a, just a... Do you know what I mean? No, I do. I totally, totally know what you mean. Like, that feels like the nov- like a novella ending. Not quite like a novel ending, but not in a bad way, because the novellas, I mean, in in some ways, the novella form is like the true Christie form, right? She really shines in that long, short story form because she is able often to pull off these endings where people are acting in really unusual but convincing ways as to their characters and the situation she's put them in. And I'd say that this is definitely one of those cases. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Kemper, do you know what one of our favorite things to find in a Christie novel is? Actors? Obviously. But (laughs) what about something that a puzzle mystery might have at its beginning? Well, we do love a good floor plan Mm. crime scene. (laughs) You're not possibly suggesting that puzzles might help solve a puzzle mystery, are you, Catherine? You know, you and I have both been playing Best Fiends, and one of the ways that it actually helps me, I think, in thinking about mysteries is in how it challenges you spatially. You have to really navigate these perils of a grid in the most efficient way possible, and it really makes you think about how those floor plans and the crime scenes might play out, you know? It's very helpful. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. We do have two film adaptations for this novel. The first is actually a TV movie. It aired in January 1986. It was set in the present day. This is one of those present day Peter Ustinov's Poirot adaptations. Mm -hmm. And it's an adequate, I think, adaptation of the novel. I think that it gets the job done with some highlights. And one of the biggest highlights for me is that Ariadne Oliver is played by Gene Stapleton. Hercule Poirot! Don't tell me uh, it's Olivia. Edith Bunker herself, and she really sounds like Edith Bunker. You know, I was going to call you. Oh? You see, I'm doing a murder hunt. I'll quote Mark Aldridge here, as I always do in his book, Agatha Christie on Screen. His take on Gene Stapleton was that, although Stapleton portrays Oliver as an American at odds with Christie's intent, this actually helps to make the character an immediate contrast to Poirot. She is vivacious, energetic, and an enthusiastic talker. The accent only marks her out as rather more ebullient than Poirot and the mostly British guest cast. And it's true, she sticks out, but in a good way. It was interesting. We love our Zoe Wanamaker in the David Suchet series, right, of don't course. get us wrong. But I appreciated a different take on the character. The only other thing I want to note about this one is that a contemporary review called it, quote, a rushed waste of talent and compared it in a negative way to the BBC Miss Marple adaptations that had just begun airing at this time. So this was in 1986. So it's interesting because the more old-fashioned adaptations of Christie, which are a little looser, a little lazy, 
easier, let's be honest. We're running up against the new regime, right, which was taking over, which would be Joan Hickson. And then very soon, three years later, David Suchet, which would, I think, raise the bar. So that's a good segue into our beloved David Suchet adaptation of this novel. This one aired in August of 2014. It was the second of five episodes in the final 13th season Hmm. of the series. And this one is famous for being... Not the last episode to air in the series. But that the last be filmed. The last to be filmed. And I would be remiss, Catherine, if I did not pull out a quote from David Suchet in his lovely book, Poirot and Me, because he has a lot to say about filming Dead Man's Folly and the emotions that were coursing through his actor body while this was happening. This is him facing the front doorway of Greenway as he's about to be filmed. As I put my hand out to reach for the handle, there is a moment, a single piercing moment, when I am not truly sure who I am. Am I an actor who has played the role of Poirot for a quarter of a century in 70 television films? Or have I actually become this little man that the world and I love so much? Where do I stop and where does he begin? It feels as if I am in a dream watching me being me and yet playing Poirot. But apart from a kind of strange confusion, there is also a sense of achievement, because I know how fortunate I am to have had the opportunity to play such an astonishing character over all these years, and to see him blossom so dramatically around me, to see his exploits dubbed into more than 50 languages and broadcast in almost every country around the world. It is amazing, humbling, and the greatest present that I could ever have been given. I think it's a lovely, touching end to something to have it be a green way. Yeah, there's actually a great photo of David Suchet still dressed as Poirot after they had, you know, yelled the final cut. And he's just crying. Like, he's just in tears. Apparently everyone was in tears. And then they had a lovely dinner in Greenway. David Suchet dined with Matthew Pritchard, uh, Agatha Christie's grandson. And it it truly is a fitting ending to that series. So I'm not going to nitpick the adaptation itself. I think it's actually the finest in that season. And Mark Aldrich actually makes this point. Given that it was their final season, they had to cover some clunkers (laughs) that they hadn't adapted yet because they just hadn't gotten around to them. Elephants Can Remember is in that final season, The Big Four. Then we have that weird pastiche of The Labors of Hercules, which we'll talk about when we cover all of those. So this is actually, with the exception perhaps of Curtain, the best episode in that final season. Yeah, I think it's a very watchable episode. And, you know, I think it's a very readable book. And I think we should talk about that when we go into the rankings. Well, let's go into the rankings, Catherine. Great segue. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now 
back to our regularly scheduled programming. I like this book. I don't know that I think it's superlative, but I think that if you look at the actual bones of it, not the padding, it's good. I agree with you. It's real classic Christie. She's not doing anything unusual for her. She's, in fact, doing all the usual things. Mm. But that's also what I love about it. It's, dare I say, cozy for Christie. Well, that's such a loaded word to know, use with do her, Do you know right? what I but, would almost... For sure it is. And do you know, I would almost give this to, like, a kid... Even though it does involve the murder of a 14-year-old. Yeah, I could. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have a very poor judgment on that front. But I think that it's very accessible and it gets a lot of the Christie themes right. I think there's a very good Poirot. I like Ariadne Oliver in it. I think it's very readable. I think plot mechanics-wise, it doesn't have any glaring holes or major issues. And I actually also, this is something that I... Well, I mean, okay, let's be honest, though. Hattie, like, climbs out a window, switches outfits, gets into the guise of a student lodger who apparently she's also been impersonating for, like, weeks. It has the same sort of fevered machinations that Evil Under the Sun did. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, you know, these people rushing around in an island retreat and having to time everything exactly right, but not as much. And Death on the Nile has that too. I mean, that sort of goes hand in hand with these overcooked puzzle mystery plots, which are half the fun, right? To me, it's not a particularly egregious example of that very well it's partially because one of the things we didn't talk about earlier and it does go to the plot mechanics is that there are all these red herrings about timing none of them matter the only thing that matters is that hattie's gone which ultimately i mean it's possible it's eminently possible what they do really weird but yeah definitely possible I, you know, and we'll talk about plot credibility hand in hand with plot mechanics, as we always do. I think if anything, there is a little bit of of a ding on plot credibility, because the reason for Hattie to disappear is that she doesn't want to have to meet Etienne D'Souza because he's going to know that she's not actually Hattie. But if these are people who are willing to off a 14 year old girl and her grandfather, why didn't they just kill him, too? Also, I think we're glossing over the fact that real Hattie grew up there. Well, she grew up in the West Indies. She didn't grow up in England. I mean, she was Amy Folliott's ward. But we don't know for how long. Well, no, we don't know for how long. But, like, for some period of time, presumably. No, it's true. I mean, how was that switcheroo enacted as effortlessly as it apparently was when real Hattie was murdered and replaced by Italian Hattie? And also, you know, in A Murder is Announced, this isn't spoiling anything, but in A Murder is Announced, Christy goes to great pains to kind of explain why photographs don't immediately alert some characters to the fact that other characters aren't who they say they are. But isn't it convenient that there are no photos of Lady Hattie Stubbs that Etienne D'Souza could ever see? I mean, she's in society. I guess she's wearing all these elaborate costumes and the hats are sort of covering her face potentially and makeup, etc. There are explanations you can use to get around all of this. Well, I mean, None also, of it is... by the way, an Italian accent versus an accent from an English expat in the West Indies do not sound the same. No, but maybe she was good at accents. I mean, you can explain away every single nitpick, I think, that you can throw at this plot. 
you really can't explain it away. And you might get to a point where it doesn't feel probable, but it's always possible. So to my mind, that's fair. But again, I mean, perhaps it stretches credibility a little bit, but I don't even think that it does all that badly on the credibility end of things either. Again, keeping in mind that this is a puzzle mystery and that's half the fun. Well, no, I I mean, I think think if if you boil it down, it's about a family who's lost their estate with a louse son as the remnant of the family who is stealing a dumb girl's money. And then covering his tracks as need be. Right. And and so that's totally credible. Yeah. We've talked so much about how in the best Christie's, when you figure out exactly who these characters are, when you solve the character, you solve the puzzle. And in a lot of ways, you know, Amy Folliott is at the center of this thing, right? She is a woman who is She's desperate. the main character. Yeah, and she's desperate to keep Ness House in her family. And that is what she does at great cost. And it's eminently believable. Real estate. It's kind of the ultimate clue. I don't think it's the ultimate clue. I think it's the ultimate preoccupation. Right. What is the thing that's going to matter the most? And it's not money, it's the house. And her son to a degree. But I think it's mostly the house. Yeah, and it's a book that's, you know, written by someone who loved her house. (laughs) I mean, the book truly is like an ode to Greenway. Greenway is what, in some ways, is the ultimate motivation for this. It's it's in a weird, in a weird way, it's one of my favorite things about Agatha is her real estate obsession, because I know I am obsessed with real estate houses that have been with you for, you know, 100 plus years. I mean, it matters a lot. And it anchors the story in its time mm-hmm. and in its setting. I mean, this is something that was happening all over England in the 50s. I mean, in the 30s and 40s, too. But <laughs> it's very topical and convincing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why it just you can point to the superficial improbabilities of the story. But I think on a deeper foundational and fundamental level, it's sound. It really does have a sound foundation. Yeah. Um, and even more so if you read that novella version, which just but, does not deal with any of that silly Also, by the way, I love the folly element of it because it seems like such a nouveau riche thing to do that you've got a Georgian estate that does not have follies and you built some ugly thing and it's architecturally unsound and random. I love that about it. I don't really understand why she had to dress as a hostile lodger. Yeah, it seems unnecessarily complicated. I mean, she had to dress as someone else to slip out because she couldn't obviously well, look so, like stuff. No, but also I would say this also is that clearly Agatha wanted to make the point about cutting up old houses into like lodging and she also wants to play fair i mean we don't have to see this italian lodger at the beginning of the story it's a coincidence that poirot comes across her but it's playing fair because we the reader sees this person with her own eyes and then we see her again when sir george pretends to be talking to hattie she's hanging a lantern no she no she is you know impersonation i will i will circle back to my earlier point that we have exactly the same like geographic setting in five little pigs and so i do think it is like a preoccupation like about what can happen to your house yeah and by the way true to life oh, no I mean, of course the no, neighboring again, estate again, of course that's her preoccupation the estate next yeah. to greenway actually was broken up into a hospital For sh- and they did wander onto her estate all the time absolutely <laughs> so. no so i but i mean i think that that's why it's in here and it's why it makes it slightly 
weird. Yeah, it's a little over-egged. Mm, I yeah, I think so. But, think but um, so. only lightly. I mean, the only other th- uh, point I just want to make on plot before we assign a number to it is that this feels like a Christie novel where she's using so many of her old tricks. But interestingly, this novel is kind of the forebearer of a lot of very specific tropes that she would go on to use in some of her later novels. And I'm not going to name check the novels because it would be way too spoilery, but there will be future Agatha Christie novels that incorporate the notion of a child murdered for what she knows, which was something that she really did for the first time here. An unexpected arrival from abroad endangering a criminal impersonation, i.e., you know, what, what's happening here with Etienne D'Souza. We will come across that as well. And then even more significantly, I think, and this is going to happen two more times in future Christie novels, we are going to have an unlikely grave hidden beneath a prominent element yeah. of outdoor architectural design. Yeah. So I think in that way, you know, we should give this book the credit that it deserves because it was actually incorporating a lot of tropes that would... Yeah you know, go on to become classics in the later canon and perhaps not used quite as well. Like, I actually think she's using all of those elements extremely well. I immensely like this book. Well, I think we talked about assigning sixes to both plot mechanics and plot credibility. Yeah, I mean, I think. After all of that, that's a little... (laughs) It it seems, you know, here's here's what I would say to our listeners. That's going to seem low, but... It seems low, but it's also the highest plot marks that we've given in four novels, actually. So it's very respectable. A 12 out of 20 is extremely respectable yeah. for plot, as it should be, yeah. I think. All right, so let's move on to series-long characters. And here we've got both Poirot and Ariadne Oliver, and they're both a delight in this book. Totally. They're both great. And I actually like seeing Poirot not have the solution. It's like actually like yeah. really a pleasant surprise that he's confused. Absolutely. And we have lots of good little moments. I just had to pull out early on when those two female uh, travelers are hitching a ride in his cab. He is so pained by their shorts. Mm -hmm. This is what Chrissy writes. He was reflecting not for the first time that seen from the back, shorts were becoming to very few of the female sex. He shut his eyes in pain. Why, oh why, must young women array themselves thus? Those scarlet thighs were singularly unattractive. Oh, Poirot. Can I just (laughs) say that I bought a jumpsuit on an impulse and I sent it to way too many people. Like a picture that was like, do I look like a Super Mario brother or am I okay? And more than one person was like, can you take it from the back angle? And I was like, no. And then I read this and I was like, I am so justified. No pictures in that view. I'm going to move right on along (laughs) and point out a couple of my favorite Ariadne Oliver moments as well. I mean, this is a particularly great Ariadne Mm -hmm. Oliver book. She really shines in this one. Uh, She's in her elements, obviously. With her her purple, her purple like suit thing. She's wearing this purple outfit. That was actually one of my funny. This, this is a really short quote, but um, after Marlene is discovered and Mrs. Oliver is just freaking out, um, this was my favorite visual moment featuring Ariadne Oliver. This is what Christy writes. I feel awful, said Mrs. Oliver, sinking down in the chair in front of him like a purple blanc mange. 
awful, she added in what were clearly capital letters, and they're written in capital letters, just sinking down in the chair in front of him like a purple blanc mange. <laughs> Every description of her, I mean, her hair, where at some point she said that she's not drunk. Yeah, well, she changes her hair, right? She's constantly changing her hairstyle. So right, but uh, they've given... Now she has the Marquise effect. Well, at the, be- at the beginning she does, but then later they give her brandy after the death, and she keeps touching the hair and she's like insistent. She's like, I'm not drunk. Leave me alone. She also, you know, as Christy always does, because there's, there's so much self-referencing going on here. There's a really funny moment when she's about to go out to give a talk titled how I write my books. (laughs) And Poirot is like, Oh no, no, I need you. And she's like, Oh, thank God. Because I didn't even know what I was going to say. And this reminded me of, you know, she has a couple of these monologues and cards on the table as well, all of which I cherished because this is what she writes. And you could just hear Christy saying this in her own voice. I mean, what can you say about how you write books? What I mean is first, you've got to think of something. And when you've thought of it, you've got to force yourself to sit down and write it. That's all. I can't imagine why everybody is always so keen for authors to talk about writing. I should have thought it was an author's business to write, not talk. Right. No, I... (laughs) That is so Christy. Yes, absolutely. And... She's like, shut up and get to work. (laughs) Right. By the way, to circle back on that Marquise effect hairdo, she was wearing it with like an ugly tweed suit. This is the quote. I, of course, have that quote as well, Catherine. (laughs) The Marquise effect ended at her neck. The rest of her could have been definitely labeled country practical, (laughs) that's in quotes, consisting of a violent yolk of egg, rough tweed coat and skirt, and a rather bilious-looking mustard-colored jumper. Wow. (laughs) Sometimes we say that Chrissy doesn't paint much of a picture when it comes to physical description of characters, but she did it there. I love it. I I can see it. (laughs) So much. I love it. The only other moment I want to bring up is this really small exchange between Poirot and Sally Leg, who I believe in Catherine's version of the book is still named Peggy Leg, which is a holdover from the novella. That's interesting. But in any case, they're talking about husbands and wives because she's having issues with her husband. And Poirot says, I'm a damn, I'm not a husband. Alas, he added. And then Sally says, I'm sure there's no alas about it. I'm sure you're quite delighted to be a carefree bachelor. And this is what Poirot responds with. No, no, madame, it is terrible all that I have missed in life. And then they kind of move on. It's this really sad, simple sentence. I actually only want to bring it up because I think Suchet went so hardcore with that element, the regret and loneliness of Poirot in the later seasons of the show. And I didn't always love it, but I always like to see when there's some textual evidence for that. And I think there certainly is here because I found that very affecting. And, you know, I think this is another category where at least my recommendation for the scoring is going to sound low. I would even say six, but I think it has to probably be at least a seven. And the only reason that I'm not going to push for like an eight is that we have so much more to come with Poirot, obviously, but even Ariadne Oliver. There's a lot of great Ariadne Oliver to come. So I think this is a really, really good showing. But we also are kind of only at the beginning of that pairing. And then we also even have a solo foray for Ariadne Oliver. I mean, so my, I, just, I don't want I, to... I would have you know. gone with an eight, which you know. But I'm okay with a seven. We can reevaluate it later. 
Okay, fair enough. All right, so seven for series-long characters. And then book-specific characters, you know, I think we've talked a lot about these characters. I think we're both in agreement that Amy Folliott is the best character Mm, in the book. I think if we were judging the novella, my scoring here would be higher, but this is where the padding is a little bit of an issue because a lot of those other characters feel slight and superficial and unusually for Christy, like a little sometimes boring. Like there is some of that padding where I was like, okay, okay. It's all well-written and I think there's some... This is a book that has a communist atomic physicist as one of the suspects. And yet, do you know anything else about him? He's utterly uninteresting. Totally. I mean, and, and Hattie is interestingly drawn. I mean, it's it's hard to judge well, her not, character because a, there's so much She's a mannequin and she's not a real person, yeah. so... Exactly. But that's the point. And Sir George, you know, it's one of these cases where Sir George is also a mask. Right. Right. So he's a convincing mask. So I can't fault her for either of those two characters. I actually think they're well drawn for what they need to do in the novel. Um, I think we agreed on this one. I think we came out on a six. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm most mostly for Amy. Mostly for Amy. If it weren't for Amy, it would be lower. And if we were judging the leaner, meaner version of this, I think it would undoubtedly be higher. Right. Okay. And then setting a tone, I think, should be pretty high because this book is obviously very readable. We both clearly really enjoyed it. Yeah. Again, I'm a fan of it. Yeah. It gets pretty high marks for tone. And as we'd already discussed, it gets pretty high marks for setting because Greenway is evoked. Mm-hmm. You know, she's using the setting effectively. And as we, you know, discussed at great length, the setting itself is significant. I mean, it really is the underlying motivation for everything for that's, sure. that that happens here. So I think we came out on a seven mm-hmm. for yep. setting and tone. Okay. And then our final category, Stuck in Its Time, which was such a big part of our discussion in our last novel, Hickory Dickory Dock. I'm happy to say that it's not as big of a part of our discussion for this novel, but it also cannot be ignored that there are a few elements here that make for an uncomfortable or jarring. I mean, read. I, we already yeah, we covered a lot of them. I find the body shaming to be really offensive, frankly. Right, the body shaming of Marlene in terms of just her, no, her body that, size and well, shape, and also, then her appearance. Well, also, the idea that you would say, "Well, it totally makes sense that she wasn't sexually assaulted." because look at her just awful. Just awful. Just awful. yeah it's awful there are a, a bunch of other uncomfortable you know statements or references made throughout the book but almost all of them are in the mouths of other characters michael wayman is talking about how they want a chinese pagoda for their tennis pavilion because lady stubbs wants to swan around in chinese coolie hats that's upsetting to picture in my mind but coming from the characters alec leg is a, a eugenicist He has some choice things to say about who should and should not be allowed to breed which was yeah. not a delight to read. You know, we have, which at this point is almost a regulation swear word put into a Christie novel that involves anyone of other than Anglo extraction. Etienne de Sousa is referred to as, quote, that Dago fellow. Um, yeah. At one point, Sir George assumes that any reference that Hattie made to Etienne de Sousa killing people was, quote, trouble with the natives, something like that, which had shades of Philip Lombard in it. But again, that is in the mouth of a character um and also, also and i will also know, give credit the coolie hat thing she's described in the dior dresses and the new look and that was part of not it. like yes. not technically that but a similar 
style. There was a similar cultural appropriation going on, right? In fashion of that time. Yes, fair enough. And also just there's a scene when Poirot goes to the Tucker cottage. And I did find that the depiction of Mrs. Tucker, Marlene's mother, you know, Mrs. Folliot refers to her as a, quote, shrew. And it did seem to be played for comedy a little bit. Her husband is the henpecked husband, and she's just this shrewish harridan. Well, and the other little girl is called, like, a pink piggy or something. That's not in the mouth of a character. That's in the narration. There's a bit of condescension surrounding the depiction of the Tucker family as a whole. Right. Which is a a little uncomfortable, but does not overwhelm the novel. So I think that this is one where there are a couple of little moments that all add up to one solid deduction. Yeah, I might change my mind on that later. I might too. Like, there's an argument to be made for deductions, but... I think for now we can leave it at one, but absolutely, if we need to revisit, that category is ripe for revisiting. So that brings us to our tallying up of the scores. We've got six plus six plus seven plus six plus seven, a minus one for a grand total of 31 points, putting Dead Man's Folly in a tie with a couple of other novels. So here's what we have, Catherine. Okay. We've got Sparkling Cyanide, The Body in the Library, The Sitterford Mystery, and They Do It with Mirrors, all at 31 points. And they are sitting at 22, 23, 24, and 25 in the rankings, which at this point is pretty much smack dab in the middle. I feel really good, actually, about its macro placement in the middle. That feels right to me. Yeah, no, I think so. It's just where do you want to list them in there. I mean, I guess I would probably put it between They Do It With Mirrors and The Sitterford Mystery. I would certainly rank Sparkling Cyanide in the Body in the Library above Dead Man's Yeah, Folly. I think the question um, is only The Sitterford Mystery. I think I would put The Sitterford Mystery above it. You know, this might be the, the moment in which we part ways as Sitterford Mystery stands. I think I would put Dead Man's Folly above The Sitterford I'm Mystery. Okay. Like, I certainly I'm, would put it you know, above. I'm, I, I'm totally okay with you putting it above Sitterford Mystery. That probably would not have been my choice, but I'm okay with that. I don't, I, if you're... No, I'm, I'm not, Kemper. It is very hot. To our <laughs> listeners, it's been over 100 degrees for about five days in a row. So I'm not going to argue with Kemper, particularly. Catherine needs to go ice her sheets and go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, no, that's fine by me. Okay. As always, we will revisit and we'll actually be revisiting soon because we do our state of the rankings episode in and around September um, 15th. Our anniversary, September 15th. So getting close. Our four year anniversary, Catherine. Can you believe it's been four years? I'll bet you can, actually. I, I can. <laughs> <laughs> That means that Dead Man's Folly is officially in 24th place of 48 novels. So truly in the middle. That feels right because I think we both really, really enjoyed this one, but we didn't feel that it deserved the highest praise of the superlative novels. But there's certainly nothing wrong with it. And I think middle of the road is a recommendation for this novel. Oh, any of that grouping, if you are sitting sweaty in lockdown in the middle of August and you want to read any of those you would be making an incredibly good choice. 
Yeah, they're all fantastic reads. Absolutely. All right, well, that is Dead Man's Folly. We will be, of course, covering a short story in the next episode. And you know what? Let's just make it official. We are going to cover Green Shaw's Folly. So that's G-R-E-E-N-S-H-A-W, apostrophe S, a Miss Marple short story in our next episode. It's been a while since we've done a Miss Marple short story. I'm excited. I am too. Our next novel, for those who are keeping track, will be a Miss Marple as well, actually. And that is 450 from Paddington. Mm. I'm excited for that one. Well, of course, you would be. But I am also very excited for that, so... In the meantime, if you have not gotten enough from us, I would advise you to go on over to our Patreon account, where we have a ton of bonus content. That is at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You could also email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And we are also on Twitter. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. And if you haven't yet given us a rating or a review, please take a moment to do so. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.